0: This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Rachel Withers. Rachel is contributing editor to The Monthly and The Politics, and she joined me to talk all things federal politics, especially the latest developments on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum campaign. Then I was joined by author and former human rights lawyer, Micheline Lee. Michelin joined me to talk about the issues raised in her quarterly essay, Lifeboat, Disability, Humanity and the NDIS. Michelin explains that the National Disability Insurance Scheme, for all its good intentions, has not understood people with disabilities well enough. And while government thought the market could do its job, a caring society cannot be outsourced. Micheline explains where the NDIS needs to improve and also what needs to happen for society to be truly inclusive. Then, finally, I was joined by Dr. Adrian Marshall. Adrian is facilitator of the Grassy Plains Network and organiser of the Northwest Alliance, and he joined me to talk about Geelong's native grasslands and their endangered inhabitants, which are under threat from land development and urban expansion. Adrian details the Geelong City Council's Geelong Strategic Assessment and its impacts on our native grasslands, as well as growling grass frogs, striped legless lizards and golden sun moths. He tells us what we can do to better protect the environment during a time of urban expansion. Now I get to talk to Rachel Withers, who is joining me, and we are talking all things federal politics here on Uncommon Sense and there's a lot happening mostly to do with the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum campaign which is in full flight at the moment both the yes and no campaign and Rachel Withers as I said is contributing editor to the monthly and the politics columnist so it's great to have you back on Rachel thank you very much for joining us
1: Thanks for having me, Amy. You're right. It has been all voice, voice, voice. I was just looking at last week's columns and every column I wrote last week was about the voice. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it
0: hasn't been but a lot else going That catalogue is very yeah. voicey. And I mean, rightly so, because in a way, I guess this was what was intended in terms of Anthony Albanese's intentions was to have a kind of short, sharp, but very intense campaign to try and grab people's attention for, you know, a period just before they're going to vote, to try and educate and engage in this kind of, this short period. I don't know whether it's going to work out for him or not. Obviously that's a, he was hedging his bets in terms of that being a strategy, but there's a lot of issues to draw out from the Indigenous voice to parliament. And I guess... There's a lot that's been happening in terms of the no side and the media coverage amplifying the no side and in many ways, not all the media, of course, but lots of the media, are amplifying and kind of distorting some of the messages of the yes campaign, which, of course, is not a surprise in any kind of political campaign, but it is quite disappointing in a campaign like this where it really shouldn't be politicised to this degree, in my opinion. So, Rachel, could you take us through some of the more poignant moments in the last week to two weeks of the campaign? And I mean, one clear moment stands out for me, which is the Marshall Langton speech at the National Press Club. But there's, of course, the long walk as well and many other moments. And of course, the commentary from the Yes campaign, as I said, being picked up by the media and um, pushed in a kind of negative light so yeah would you mind kind of bringing us up to speed on some of your columns and and some of the most important moments that we really should be reflecting on at the moment in terms of how it's playing out politically
1: yeah look I think that Marsha Langton speech to the National Press Club is a good place to start that was about two weeks ago Um, and the Press Club is having all sorts of different speakers throughout the course of this six-week campaign um, from both the yes and the no side. Um, and Marsha Langton spoke about, you know, some of the the racism and some of the pylons and the, the media attacks that have been taking place in this campaign. Um, it wasn't necessarily like the sort of press club speech that got all the headlines, but there were a few that, you know, people picked up on. Um, there was a sort of a plea she gave to the media to not participate in pylons you know she was sort of saying the things that happened to uh you know figures like adam goods you know she could see it happening to the young up up and coming leaders yeah and she basically you know asked the media to lift their game she said she said lift your game um because of the toll this was taking on on people involved on indigenous australians involved in this on both sides of the debate um, which is what made what happened the next week, uh, last week, mm. especially disappointing. Um, that's when we saw m- some comments Marsha Langton had given to a weekend forum over in Western Australia um, where she she said that um, she had been asked about uh, some of the, one of the arguments being put forward by the No campaign um, about um, implying that the voice would mean financial compensation or reparations, and and this is a line that we actually know, uh, no campaigners are trained to kind of plant in um, the volunteers when they're told what to say to, on the on the phones are, are told to bring up this idea like oh I've heard about this not say it's true but plant this idea and so Marsha Langton told somebody in the audience that when you take ideas like that um, I can read out her her actual yeah quote. go for it she said that. Every time the no case raises their arguments, if you start pulling it apart, you get down to base racism. I'm sorry to that say sorry to say that's where it lands, or sheer stupidity. Um, and so we saw a paper over in WA um, take this and headline it: "Marsha Langton labels no voters racist or stupid," even though she was referring to the the case, the campaigns, and the arguments they're using. And then we saw, of course, the Australian pick it up and. Mm. Um, really run with this extremely misleading headline it said that she had she had branded no voters racist comma stupid in quotes and very quickly this was called out as inaccurate if you actually read the Australian piece at the minute it went up which I did it did say her actual quote but the headline was so misleading but of course um this spiraled across the media um You know faster than it could be called out the australian was forced to change their headline but by that stage it had already you know spread across to all the other news corp websites Mm. Uh, peter dutton had taken the the headline the australian headline in its original form and put it on his social media it's still there you know just one of those lies that that couldn't be put back in the box. and even when the rest of the media corrected it, um, even sort of some of the more mainstream media outlets would say, Marsha Langton denies calling um, Nova over- is racist and stupid. Well, the fact is she didn't. Um, yeah. But, yeah, basically this very pylon that Marsha Langton had asked the media not to engage in, she was the victim of the very next week. And, yes, um, of course more and more of her comments have been dug up, you know, different times she's mentioned racism in her long and illustrious career um and you know it's, it's all about basically the, the the yes campaign has been quite careful not to tar the no campaign with the racism brush uh you know lest they offend some of the soft no voters um but you know the australian and sky news have been so eager to um to pull these out um and so that that sort of became the story of last week i think you know marcia langton has her you know, Hillary Clinton basket of deplorables moment, basically, is is what they wanted. But then, you know, it was hard to imagine that last week could have got any worse. But then on Thursday, we had Senator Jacinta Price, who's the Coalition's um, Indigenous Affairs spokesperson and also one of the lead uh, no campaigners. She appeared at the press club herself and um, she told the journalists assembled that um, colonisation had... Not having any negative impacts on Indigenous Australians. In fact, it had positive impacts. She referred to now having running water. Um, and she also made a comment suggesting that if intergenerational trauma was real, then um, the convicts should be, you know, the descendants of convicts would be suffering from it too. Um, and th- there was a column last week that um, Daniel James, who is a Triple R host, and um, mm. he does my column on Fridays, and he wrote the most, you know, Brilliant takedown of her comments, um, and and really pulled them apart with evidence and and logic. And um, I really recommend people go and read that one from, from Friday, themonthly.com.au/the-politics. Um, all of Daniel's and I's columns are there. Um, and yeah, there's the one about Jacinta Price. I thought was really important because I think. Those comments were intended to be inflammatory and intended to grab Mm -hmm. headlines. They really stole the headlines from Michael Long, which is what I had written about the day before, um, because he had completed his long walk to Parliament on Thursday morning, and it was quite a hopeful. Yeah, and and I honestly, what an achievement. Yeah, yeah, and and he he, you know, implored the prime minister at the end of his walk to to maintain heart. Yeah, and he was referring sort of in opposition to former Prime Minister John Howard's suggestion that no voters maintain the rage. Um, oh, yes. And it was it was a really quite a beautiful speech. But then, of course, um, Jacinta Price spoke a few hours later at the press club and by evening all the uh, news bulletins were about what Jacinta Price had said because it really was quite shocking and as, as a reason it dominated news for 24 mm. hours or so. But um, I, I thought Daniel's takedown was one of the best, so...
0: Yeah, and all the cartoonists picked it up as well, so I saw it was Yeah, doing the cartoonists always do such a great job, don't they? They, they really distilled it quite yeah. well, as, as Daniel did, and everyone can listen to The Mission today from 7pm mm. to hear Daniel himself. He's been doing amazing broadcasting, as always, and, as you said, has written an excellent column. I'll put the link up to Daniel's column on our Twitter page so that people can read it. It was called A Denial of Reality, yeah, it reminded me, I, I'd almost forgotten about that moment and then I remembered and it was, I guess, shocking to hear what she said because so much of it is not grounded in reality, like that idea of intergenerational trauma and, you know, the denial of it, coming from an Indigenous person to say that and, and also, like, to to say that they have running water. Well, even in uh, a lot of those remote communities Really far north, that there are some that still don't like. They actually had to leave their um, native lands because the federal government weren't actually supplying water and electricity to those areas. So, I don't know. Like, it's so frustrating to to hear so much misinformation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's frustrating and it's 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 galling because yeah. there's the, the misinformation, but it also you know, they tend to contradict themselves from one moment to the next. You know, I think we all now, you know, it's accepted that um, the gap is real, you know, in in terms of health, you know, life expectancy, opportunity, education, um, incarceration rates, you know, they're they're measurable. We all agree. Um, We all agree it's not working. Even the no campaign sort of argues something's wrong, but that, um, they just disagree with the voice as the mechanism for addressing that. Um, and then you've at the same time got sort of the lead no campaign of saying that this disadvantage isn't, isn't real. Um, you know, and it's sort of there is something really very uncomfortable about the suggestion that just um, enterprise is making there because it is sort of implying that, you know, it, it's their own fault. It's Indigenous Australians' own fault if the gap exists. Um and, you know, I think that that's why that's the very key role that Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine play in this debate as kind of the um, the main spokespeople of the main no camp because we've got a progressive no campaign as well. Um, but it's that they can stand there and say, look how well I've done, you know, um, disadvantage isn't real. Um, look, look, we have a voice, it's me. Um, but meanwhile, that voice is saying um, quite, quite offensive things really.
0: Yeah, very, very offensive. And as you said, wrong. And the Australian Electoral Commission, they actually have a website up, which is debunking misinformation. So I'll also put a link up to that because it's up there um, to make sure that there's like, I guess, an impartial arbiter of some of what's being said at the moment. Um, But there's also a lot of muddying of the waters going on from people like Warren Mundine, from Peter Dutton, Jacinta Price, Uh, you know, there's a lot of this, well, how about we have a second referendum, (laughs) Uh, you know, and this one could be just about constitutional recognition and it won't have, um, you know, this voice body and, you know, like, I mean, who is going to have another referendum after this? Like they're, they're very rare occurrences and, it's and unlikely I, and I, I,
1: you know marshall langton said at, at the press club two weeks ago when she was asked about this second referendum idea that i think we all knew was sort of a, a bizarre distraction mm. thought bubble from peter dutton but she said well I, we won't be supporting that because we have asked with it we've gone through this process we were asked about constitutional recognition and what form it would take and um you know, we had the Uluru dialogues, we had all of these all of these conversations, um, and we came to the voice in the end. We have rejected um recognition that is purely symbolic. Um, and so you know, that that is not what has been asked for. So it would be a sort of um white Australia imposed um type of recognition if it was just the purely symbolic recognition that um, Peter Dutton has put forward, which of course contradicts his his earlier claims about the voice to parliament, one of his early criticisms was that it would be purely symbolic and he wanted practical action. So, you know, Peter Dutton makes no effort to stay consistent in terms of what his actual issue is with the voice. Um, And I think we all know, by now, that it's very much just something for him to oppose, uh, to try to gain a bit of political advantage here. You know, he he teetered on the fence for a while at the start of the year, which way he was going to go. But now that he's gone, no, he's gone. He's gone hard no, and he will he will do anything he can to tear this down in order to do a bit of damage to Anthony Albanese.
0: Yeah, indeed. And uh, the other kind of area of um, of muddying of the waters is uh, this idea of truth and treaty, which are. Uh, as well, you know, part of the um, the idea that had came up at um, the Uluru Dialogue. So there's obviously the voice, but there's truth and treaty as well. And um, there's kind of a discussion now about, you know, should treaty happen and, um, you know, like the no campaigner kind of, I guess, bringing up these issues to try and distract from the voice issue Um, You know, so that those who want a treaty are wondering, will we get a treaty if we don't put the voice up? And, you know, like it just seems to be so disingenuous to link things together that clearly are not linked at the moment or shouldn't be linked together. I mean, obviously, truth and treaty is something that um, people like Thomas Mayo have spoken to me about and uh, campaigning on. Um, you know, as like a suite of, we will eventually get to truth and treaty. And obviously, as um, Lydia Thorpe, <clears throat> excuse me, Lydia Thorpe has said, you know, she really thinks that treaty needs to come first. You know, what are you, can you kind of, I guess, demuddle the muddling for us, um, Rachel, <laughs> in terms of what what on earth is going on? And, and maybe we can bring in the progressive no campaign as well, because that is still um, running. Yeah. Look, I think I think the
1: simplest um, thing to the simplest way to look at this is that the Uluru statement did call for voice, truth, and treaty. Um, the progressive no campaign um, treaty is really the emphasis for them. Um, a couple of a couple of pe- leaders um, did walk out of the um, Uluru dialogues, you know, and didn't agree with the order that. Uh, this was put forward in a voice truth treaty but um basically there is there is some disagreement about the order but that all three elements are equally important here um and the voice is the one that we are having a vote on it is the one that would be going into the constitution um and so treaty has been kind of used as a bit of a conspiracy by the conservative no campaign implying that um you know i I think a the conspiracy that that there is some something to be afraid of here is a big part of the No campaign's messaging in general, but Treaty especially. You know, you you get down to these arguments of like it's you know they're going to take your backyard and and all sorts of things, which is which is not what Treaty is about. And so kind of reminds um, of that native title argument yeah, as well. Well, the, the same arguments have come up again and again um, over the years. Yeah. Um. And so. Yeah, you've got kind of a no campaign, you know, questioning what treaty means. I I do think um, Albanese has been very cagey on treaty. Um, of course, the government wants us to focus on the question at hand because that is what people are voting on. You know, treaty can be done with or without this vote. Um, we are voting on a voice, um, a, an advisory body, a uh, For Indigenous Australians to have a say over matters that affect them, Um, and so, you know, treaty has become a complicated part of this debate because even some on the in the conservative No camp want treaty. Uh, We found out we've heard from Warren Mundine a couple of times, but he repeated on the weekend that he supports treaties, um, and the rest of the No campaign have distanced themselves from him, Um, and so you know. Everybody's kind of got a different idea of what treaty means, but I think what the government and the Yes campaign wants us to focus on is the fact that we are voting on the voice part. That is the only part that will be on the ballot paper. Um, and, you know, the rest of it is is all a distraction, really. Um,
0: um, and we need to vote on it because it needs to be constitutionally changed. So, you know, this is, this is a very pragmatic reason why we're all going to vote on the 14th of October, um, in the referendum. It's, um, it also reminded me, you just mentioned Warren Mundine and, you know, the, the different things that are coming up on that side and I think I saw Nick Fyke tweeting, as he so brilliantly does, and he was, uh, I, I guess, remarking on the fact that there was really no shame when Warren Mundine said that he wouldn't rule out a role on the Indigenous voice to Parliament <laughs> as on the advisory body that he is against. And I was I was reading that going, is this real? <laughs>
1: it is, it is. Um yeah, and, and you know this is just the, the day after and the day before he's out there criticizing the voice as a um elite power crab. Yeah. Um I thought the material advocate, which often nails uh what's going on in politics brilliantly in about 10 words, um, um they had a headline No campaign shocked their spokesman who tried to get elected as both a Labor and Liberal MP would have such inconsistent political views Uh, Mm. because Warren Mundane famously used to be the president of the Labor Party Um, and then over the years he has moseyed on over to the right um, and has had a a run as a... um, to try to be an MP in New South Wales uh, and he is apparently also gearing up to go after Maurice Payne's Senate vacancy in New South Wales. So, um, yeah, Warren Medina hasn't necessarily had the most consistent track record, although, as he says, he has always been pro-treaties. It's just not clear what exactly he means when he says treaties because he says he doesn't mean a treaty between the government um, and First Nations peoples. Um, He means individual treaties, but it's not quite clear with who um, for different nations, but not with the government necessarily.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, and it was also very interesting that apparently uh, his potential run for that Senate spot is supported by Scott Morrison, which I thought, do you really want him on your side? I'm not sure if that's a good (laughs) thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see where that goes. Warren Mundine has denied his interest, but there has been a lot of reporting and a lot of Liberal sources, say, um, in a couple of the newspapers. So we'll see where that ends up. Um, I guess it it probably will depend quite a lot on what happens with the referendum Mm. on Indeed. And let's
0: shift focus to the positive because there is (laughs) positive here, which is the fact that there was a lot of people out on the street over the weekend Uh, we saw a little bit of reporting on it, not as much as all the negative reporting, which is why I'm reasserting it into Mm. this conversation. Um, The organisers of the rally in Melbourne said that they estimated the turnout to be about 60,000, but police were estimating 30,000, so there's a bit of a um, gap there. But there were really um, significant people there, including Peter Garrett uh, from Midnight Oil, Linda Burney, Um, you know, uh, what's uh, Mark Dreyfus, my my brain was going blank there. Um, So, you know, some important figures as well as obviously a lot of huge local support. And I know that, for example, there were smaller events going on in communities. If you couldn't get to the Melbourne event, there were uh, ones taking place across the regional areas as well. So, you know, there's a big kind of groundswell of visible um, positivity going on, and I guess that was perhaps some type of remedy to the level of toxicity in the debate that's been going on um, at the moment. But do you think that, you know, the rallies that we saw on the weekend kind of accurately reflect the, the kind of sentiment that's happening at the moment? Is there a shift? Is there momentum happening in terms of the Yes campaign?
1: Look, I mean, if there is going to be a shift, uh, that would be, you would think, the moment um, that might um, galvanise the Yes campaign somewhat. And we saw Noel Pearson out yesterday saying that he believed it was it was a turning point. I mean, the polls do look very dire um, and there's been a, a bit of reporting on the polls and um, they're not wrong. Uh, its It's important not to be in denial about the mm. polls, but there is a whole bunch of um undecided and soft yes and soft no voters out there um and there was a great piece in the saturday paper on the weekend about um you know what the pollsters are saying and and what what they're finding from these soft yes and nos in focus groups but there is there is a very large number of voters still up for grabs um it's still an uphill battle for the yes campaign um but it's it's not over um and you know i think i think the campaigning is about to ramp up on both sides you, you would think things couldn't have got much more intense than they did in the last week but um, we've got four weeks left um, and I think it's about to get even more intense the one thing I would say about about those very uplifting scenes we saw um, in capital cities and towns all across the country on the weekend is you know um, when I was writing about this last week with with Michael Long's walk because um, that really was another beautiful moment mm. and you saw politicians from across the political spectrum coming to meet him and walk with him for the end of his walk. Um and you know it, it doesn't necessarily change the fact that this may go down. Um and and it I'm not saying it should necessarily be a, a huge comfort to Indigenous Australians. Um but I do think when we see these moments of of real enthusiasm and and love and so much of those those um, marches looked like they were driven by love and respect. Um, you know, it doesn't change things, but there is a very large contingent of very passionate yes voters in this country. Um, and I think, um, you know, we're having this debate about whether the referendum is divisive. It, it obviously uh, has been divisive because there are two sides and that that's how a referendum that wasn't bipartisan was always going to go. But I think there is um, there has been a lot to be proud of in this campaign, um, even though there's been a lot to be very uh, ashamed of, I would say. But um, yeah. I think I think moments like that remind you that there, there are a lot of people in this country who will be giving up their time and their money um, and trying to convince their friends and family that, um, you know, this is nothing to be afraid of and this is the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. And we did see some research come out about uh, the fact that the best way to convince someone um, is actually to advocate directly to friends and family, to not, you know, rely on media messages, to not, um, you know, rely on other modes of communicating and informing, the, you know, the person that you're hoping will change their minds. Like the, the trust level is much higher when it's between friends and between family, so that kind of one-on-one um, dialogue is so much more important than even what we're doing here, Rachel. So for the people listening who, you know, know people who are on the fence or they're not sure or they're confused, you know, you um, talking to them directly is going to be far more effective than, you know, sending them a podcast or um, mm-hmm. putting them onto the booklet on the AEC website, even though they are also very reliable sources of information probably, you know, the the way that you can persuade people um seems to be, you know, that really direct method that Thomas Mayo was advocating for um, in our interview, which was really to, like, have these types of kitchen table conversations, those kind of grassroots chats that that happen, you know, in day-to-day life. Um, So that's something to keep in mind for people who are feeling like they're not empowered at the moment or they're despairing or they're worried that it's not going to get up. That's one thing you can do. Um, I also just wanted to reflect, Rachel, on the climate that we are (laughs) talking about, not climate change, because I I was going to say climate change, but um, the climate that we're voting in, because one thing I've been concerned about since before it got called was the fact that we've seen the RBA, the Reserve Bank, increasing interest rates. We've seen inflation going up obviously, meaning the cost of living is increasing. And when people, in particular voters, are stressed or are under financial pressure of any kind, you know, the kind of instinct, the primal instinct is to look inwards, is to protect, is to conserve energy, is to think about, you know, themselves, is to narrow their circle of, um, I guess, thinking to what they just need to do to get by because it's a practical thing. Um, and so when we're asking people to actually step back and think about something that isn't about them for once, that, you know, that is actually about, um, you know, the greater good of the country, you know, it makes me wonder whether this was the right time to call the referendum given how much pressure and stress people are under. Are we going... Uh, have, have Has Anthony Albanese in a way... Made it so much harder, made the battle so much more difficult for the Yes campaign because it's being called in a, in a kind of economic climate that is, um, you know, not conducive to this kind of uh, more open thinking, more um, open hearted
1: spirit. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think there were signs when the government came into office of how how bad the economy was going to get, but perhaps they didn't realise um, quite how how um, you know, tight these times would be when they decided they were going to have it in their first term. Um, we've seen a lot of um, a lot of good polling and sort of research coming from Cos Samaras at Redbridge, who tweets a lot of his findings, which was that, you know, for quite a while he's been finding that people in the outer suburbs, people in the mortgage belt, um you know, uh, turning against the voice, you know, and, and these are people who voted Labor at the last election um, because voting intention is not lining up with, um, sorry, party party preference is not lining up with uh, voice uh, preference. But, yeah, that those voters in particular, the attitude is sort of like, why are you spending so much time talking about this and not about me or um, why are you not focused on my problems? And I guess that the answer to that is that the government is, Trying to do both. I mean, we could we could probably have a much longer conversation about uh, whether government is being bold enough. Uh, but mm. I think the government is is able to um, walk and chew gum at the same time. The problem is, you know, the coalition has very much decided to make um, Parliament and Question Time all about the voice of late. And so, even it, though um, you've got sort of um, government backbenchers asking government ministers questions about the economy and about um you know uh various policies that they are bringing in um everything you get in terms of the cut and thrust of, of question time has been all about the voice and the conspiracies and the what are you hiding and how many pages is your lawyer statement so what uh those kind of voters are saying is a government that appears to only be focused on the voice when that is uh, very much not the case mm. it's, a, it's an opposition that is extremely focused on the voice i would say
0: yeah, yeah, it's um, it's certainly a difficult time for you know cut through, getting any kind of cut through. I know the Yes campaign is struggling, but we need to kind of keep focusing on the positives as well. Um, and I also, Rachel, just wanted to finish our conversation, doing a major kind of jump <laughs> across <laughs> to a totally different topic, uh, because we did finally reach a conclusion on something. Well, I guess it is a bit related to cost of living, kind of, um, which is housing affordability and the um, Labor bill that was presented to Parliament. Um, It was, you know, going on and on and on. They were trying to set up this housing fund, which uh, the Greens were saying is going to be highly ineffective. It's going to take years to even build enough interest to create Social housing, Uh, there's not enough money allocated to social housing, you know, they wanted a rent freeze. There are all kinds of, uh, I guess, demands that the Greens were putting on Labor to try and change the course of the bill. And we finally did actually see uh, some concessions extracted from the government and that bill eventually passed. So could you just let us know where we landed in terms of housing um, and Labor's plans? And and obviously they're saying that this was an election commitment that they were delivering on.
1: Yeah, look, I think both sides have tried to spin it as a win. And and I think you could say both sides sort of had a win. the government got their bill through and um, the Greens were able to extract an extra... Uh, firstly, it was $2 billion a couple of months ago and then on Monday they were offered a billion and they took the deal um, to an extra $3 billion in total. Um, and so the Greens can point to that, but they didn't get the... Um, the rent cap or freeze that they had made kind of the the main focus of their push. Um, And so they've said they're going to keep pushing on that um, and they're going to use the next housing bill that comes up to do the same thing basically. Um, But, you know, I think it became apparent that this was the best they were going to get on the um, Housing Australia Future Fund, um, and so they've they've taken the deal and, you know, there's some criticism. There always is, uh, I think, when the Greens and Labor go to battle and the Greens eventually take a deal, um, whether they, you know, um, fold it too soon. Uh, by the same token, you've got sort of uh, Labor people out there saying, like, oh, look at how the Greens held this up while, you know, failing to acknowledge what the Greens actually got. So mm. it, I think it always comes down to your particular you know, inclinations and perspectives here. Um, but certainly the Greens got quite a lot of money uh, out of this. Um, but, you know, of course, the renter issue, I think, um, is not going anywhere. And I think the Greens have really tapped into something um, in terms of speaking to the the one third of the country who rents. Um, and one thing I've seen a lot of the media analysis of, of the Greens and their relationship with renters is you see a lot of um, media commentators saying oh you know they've really found some votes they are like really playing politics with this and I think I think that really cheapens or, or is a very simplistic way of looking at what they're doing I think they do know that there is a campaign to be had here but also there's a campaign to be had because renters are really suffering and um, yeah. renters who are stuck in the rent cycle and there's no way out have have no, no way to kind of respond to these these rent increases and they are kind of I suppose at the bottom of the pile of this rent uh, this housing crisis that's a broader you know supply affordability um all the things but um renters you know I, I think the greens are speaking to a group because that group is there to be spoken to and because um, there really is an issue here so the Greens are kind of threatening you know if if Labor doesn't want to do something on this by the time the next election rolls around well we'll be happy to have an election about it Um, and yeah I think I think Labor would be quite silly to go to the election without having done something to neutralize this threat Um, and for renters because it's the right thing to do.
0: Absolutely yeah I agree it has been cheapened and wrongly so because there it's a legitimate concern of a huge block of people that labor are ignoring
1: so yeah and it's as if it's as if media commentators will say oh look labor has found a voting demographic in workers you know yeah No be questions that labor's values are worker based um and so yeah why can't the greens values also be renter based uh, as well as being a uh lucrative pool of votes hmm indeed
0: oh. There's so much more to talk about, uh, Rachel, but we'll have to finish it up there. But I'm so grateful to you for taking us through what's been happening with the Voice to Parliament um, referendum campaigns, because I think that is so important to cut through all the noise and the toxicity that's happening at the moment and you've done it beautifully and uh, thank you also for updating us on the housing issue as well and uh, everyone make sure you check out Rachel's columns on the politics and as she said Daniel James's Friday Mm. column as well and um yeah, it's ah, uh, it's very wonderful to have the chance not only to hear Daniel on the radio, but get to read his excellent pieces. As we're well, we're so lucky
1: to have him in this debate. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your time Thanks, today. Thanks, Amy. Bye. I've just been chatting with Rachel Withers, contributing editor to the monthly and columnist for The Politics.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
0: We are about to delve into an in-depth conversation with Michelin Lee who has just released a quarterly essay called Lifeboat: Disability, Humanity and the NDIS. And Michelin is joining me to talk really in depth about the issues that come up in the quarterly essay. Um, And Michelin for background uh, is a novelist and she wrote an excellent novel called The Healing Party, which was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. And uh, Michelin was born in Malaysia uh, and migrated to Australia when she was eight. She has lived with a motor neurone disability from birth, um, and as you'll hear, um, so have her siblings, and she's also a former human rights lawyer and painter, which is a wonderful combination, really a multi-talented person, and Michelin is joining us, as I said, to talk about her quarterly essay, which is out through Black Ink, and uh, I think what I found really resonated when I was reading this um, quarterly essay was, you know, the idea or the ideals of the NDIS are very lofty and very important and very critical to the lives of people with, with a disability. Uh, But unfortunately the reality isn't what was planned and it has really become something of a massive stress for people who are trying to get onto the NDIS, for people who have plans on the NDIS and having their funding changed or, um, I guess, undermined or questioned and also for those who are having to use providers, maybe they're being exploited, being charged higher rates, not being able to access services. Um, There's so many different issues in terms of um, participants and the way that they interact with the NDIS, let alone the fact that the government has been banging on about the cost of the NDIS, which seems to be the only thing you hear about in the media is what it's costing us instead of actually um, what we need to do to enhance it, to make it actually do what it was set out to do. So I'm really excited that um, Michelin is going to be joining us now to talk about these issues from a firsthand perspective. And also to say, I guess, uh, something which comes up in the blurb for this, which is that um, while the government thought market could do its job, a caring society cannot be outsourced. And I think that's such a important message for almost everything in life. So I welcome onto the program, Michelin Lee. Hi there, Michelin, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for the very generous introduction, and that was a, a great summary of the essay.
2: Thank you.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. And um, I, yeah, this it's, it's so upsetting to read the experiences of people at the moment um, on the NDIS because obviously it, it's providing something that's very important and we'll get to what it is providing people if if people aren't familiar with the NDIS, but there's so many experiences of just a kind of bureaucratic minefield, a nightmare uh, that doesn't need to be this way and it's set up like that. Almost it feels as a disincentive to engage with it, um, you know, which also shouldn't be the case. Uh, But it seems that, as you say in this quarterly essay, society is constantly putting up barriers uh, rather than removing them for people with a disability. And that is a systemic problem that the NDIS has not solved. In fact, it's only kind of embedded uh, this kind of issue about around accessibility. So, uh, Michelin, would you be able to tell us a bit about the NDIS? And I'm going to preface this by saying that we have covered it in depth with luke Henrique Gomez from The Guardian in a kind of policy sense, but many of those listening may not have heard him speak about it. So, from your perspective, uh, you know as someone who has from a dis um, from birth lived with a disability and needed uh, different types of personal support what did the ndis replace and what from your perspective was it meant to achieve okay so um, the ndis
2: represented transformational um, change really it was um, an amazing. Achievement, and it was um, a great reflection on Australian society that that they were um, backing this huge change to give people with disabilities a fairer go and to be more inclusive and to actually um, create this huge national institution and put the funding behind it. Um, and so it is really disappointing pointing now that it hasn't worked out um, as it was intended, but there is still hope because we're learning from the mistakes and there's this NDIS review that is occurring. Um, and I guess you could see the last the first 10 years of the NDIS as the stage one and that we can actually go um, after this review and, and keep on improving the NDIS. But to go back to your question about the um, what the NDIS, I guess I should start about what the NDIS is. Um, prior to the NDIS, um, people who needed disability support services um, and by disability supports, I mean um, where you need just the physical assistance to... Um, get dressed, showered, get out of bed, or it might be um, you might have a cognitive disability and you need the assistance of someone there um, just prompting you and helping you um, to to navigate decisions in life and to accompany you out into the community. So there's the personal support worker um, assistance, and then there's also the disability equipment that we might need, it might be um, wheelchairs or um, um, respiratory um, machines or it might be hearing aids or um, other disability implements. Um, And so my... um, And it's also um, having appropriate housing uh, for people with disabilities. And prior to the NDIS, States were providing services, um, but they were um, inadequately funded and quite ad hoc. And a lot of people were not receiving enough services, and um, and were not having enough choice and control about how they use the services. So, for instance, um, you couldn't choose um, if you needed. Um, intensive assistance. You often had to go into group homes and you couldn't choose who you um, lived with. Um, And so in my situation, I have a progressive disability and I increasingly needed more supports. But um, the way disability supports were funded, it was just in an arbitrary way where there was just um, a a bucket of money there, and it wouldn't actually respond to people's needs. Um, so there were long waiting lists for supports, and um, and some of the most urgent situations you'd get supports, but but even then it wasn't always consistent. Um, and um, so now the um, so the NDIS um, was had the goal of addressing that, so that it's supposed to respond to needs, to people's actual needs um, and um, and to give more choice and control um, rather than what was called block funding. So there was block funding um, by state governments to disability support agencies, and these agencies um, would then, make the decisions about how they would provide the services and to whom Um, and to provide more choice um, the decision was made to um, change it to individualized funding where the individuals with disabilities received individual funding packages and um, would be able as consumers to exercise choice and control because they would be buying um, support themselves. Um, and so, what's happened is, is that for people who um, can be the idealized consumers, that system has worked quite well. Um, there's a lot of, of managing your own funds sourcing your own supports training the workers so it it actually is quite um onerous but but if you have the cognitive ability or if you have an advocate who can manage it for you then it, it does provide some choice and control but for those people who haven't got that ability or um, or Advocates to do it for them um, through this market system, um, they've missed out or even um, um, ended up in a worse situation. Um, and the market system was set up with some market stewardship, um, such as some support coordinators who are supposed to assist people in how to spend um, the money and, and to, to um, attract the support workers. But the support coordinators themselves um, there's a, a vast um, range of experience and that often hasn't worked very well for a lot of of people um, and supports have been privatized mm. um, and with that privatization of services services were supposed to um, become more competitive and more innovative. That was the theory, but the reality is that um, the markets um, that we were are experiencing thin markets, um, particularly for people living in remote and regional areas, and for people who have specialised needs, or for people who support providers find are uh, um, for people who support providers might see as difficult. So, support has flown
0: where profits are more easily made, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and that's you know the behaviour of a market, isn't it? To try and find the easiest solution or the easiest money rather than to provide for everyone to make sure that there's equity in terms of access. Uh, and that's something that governments are supposed to do, but you can't, as we as we well know, leave it up to the markets to decide where resourcing goes because it often does fall in such a disproportionate way. Um, you made me think about some of the providers that I'm aware of that people access, including, uh, for example, physiotherapy and occupational therapy. Uh, they, I've noticed, or a lot of them at least, have different rates for NDIS participants and a lot of them seem to charge much above the rate that non-NDIS participants have and uh, some of the rationale it seems to be is that there is a greater administrative burden uh, on the the provider uh, and that's why they charge extra is so that they can kind of make up um the the time that they spend or the resources that they spend you know through that extra i guess gap but i wondered if you had observed that yourself that there seems to be i guess a different um a different rate and and like an uh, i don't know in some cases potentially people being overcharged who are on the ndis um, and then obviously having their plans greatly reduced when they're, um, you know, using up funds faster.
2: Uh, yes. Um, so the NDIA, that's the body that administers the NDIS, um, has set caps or, or maximum rates um, for support workers and for physios and occupational therapists. And often the, the provider will just go straight to the the maximum rate. The maximum rates Mm. are there for um, instances where a bit more complexity is involved or specialisations involved or or extra administrative burdens, but unfortunately, people, we are finding that providers are going straight to the maximum, even when it's not necessarily justified Um, and um, and um, with um, my own support workers, I don't go to the, the maximum um, rates, but that does make it more difficult for me um, to source support workers. And it, it is also a, um, a more complex situation where, you know, you do want to reward your support workers, but I'm trying to um, do the right thing and actually um, um Match the complexity to the mm. to the rate, um, yeah. But it 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 does make it difficult. And um, in we're finding that um, in that support workers. So, for instance, I go um, on. I source a lot of my support workers through apps, um, and a lot of the providers there show a preference for people, um, for taking people out on community access, um, like um, shopping or um, or to the footy or to a movie. Um, and the support that I need is very much um, the actual help to get out of bed and showering and um, and help helping me get ready for the day and i find that there's actually um less what providers to choose from because um yeah because there is a shortage of, of support providers as well and a lot of um inexperienced um people have come on to these apps and and they charge the maximum rate for doing this um, community access and and in in some cases of course it's it's warranted but um but we do need to find um um that matching of complexity and um and and the salary and I think that's one of the things that that the review will look at um and I I guess we're talking about um costs and and um and providers taking advantage of the system. And there's been a lot of talk about fraud. But I think that's actually a a smaller um, problem in in the scheme of things. Um, One of the main issues I see with NDIS is that it's not actually helping to achieve at this stage greater participation. Mm. So there are many people um, who are on the NDIS who say that the NDIS has been life-changing, and for me, it has in in some ways as well. And and we're very grateful for that um, because now, for instance, I um, I'm able to have enough support worker that I can stay in my home. Um, I might not have been able um, to do that. I might have been compelled to to live in a more kind of group situation um, and have less choices where I live and um, with whom I live. Um, but because of the NDIS, I have this more individualised service and I, I can have support workers and I um, manage them. I mean, it takes up a lot of my time navigating the NDIS, but, but it, it does mean that, that I'm able to live in the way um, that I want to at home, but it's not necessarily translating it to great participation. And um, that's where I wanted to talk about the need for, for more structural supports. And in a way, the NDIS itself was, was supposed to represent structural change. And by structural change, I mean where society is actually set up in a way where. Um, it just embraces that the fact that that people are diverse, and that people have disabilities, and that we all um, have vulnerabilities as well, and and that that um, we all have dependencies. We're interdependent. I mean, the way society is is set up, it's actually set up for a very narrow conception of of ability, yeah. um, and disability needs to be seen as part of the normal variation of life and that the measures to make society more inclusive um, should also be seen as normal because it is normal and, and be, should be seen as normal and expected rather than seen as a burden so that we don't have to fight for each um, for each entry we get or pe- or piece of access to jobs or... Education, or whatever, which is the situation right now. We're still having to fight um, not to be shut out um, from participating in society, and and so it's about the structural changes in the in, in society and in our environments. You know, the physical access is the most most obvious, but it's also about how institutions, like our legal institutions, are run, how education needs to be. Or neurodiverse and disability support is part of that structural change is that recognition that that there are people who in order to participate in society need that individual support as well um and the aim of the NDIS was that it would be a collective responsibility and that we wouldn't have to fight for it every um, step of the way um and um, so, and the whole goal was for people with disabilities to be able to participate. because if you actually look at all the statistics on the rate of participation um, in jobs, in an employment, um, in um, you know in, in leadership, um, they're very low and, and in fact for us, a country as wealthy as Australia is, um, the comparison with other oecd um, countries is is is, um, is very low as, as well and so with the the NDIs has had a very individual focus um, and hasn't focused on the the structural side enough and um, and the, you know the obvious example and um, is um, that, felt, for me, I might be able to be um, dressed up, ready, ready to, to get out there. Um, but to actually, you know, get to my job, um, public transport um, is difficult. You know, there was, um, you know, for years and years we've been fighting for, for better public transport. And 20 years ago, um, there was a commitment made under the Disability Discrimination Act that minimum standards for access would be met, and um, that timeline expired a few months ago, and and those minimum standards weren't met. Um, and so, in in order to actually be able to get into jobs, into education, things like that, you need those those broader changes as well. Yeah. And and one thing um, that I haven't mentioned yet is mm-hmm. that that this individualised um, focus of the NDIS has meant that if you get the individual funding package, you get supports, um, and the people who don't qualify for individual funding packages were supposed to, to be able to get the supports through the community. So, um, um, you know, the kids with autism or learning um, delays were, sup- were supposed to be able to get the, the supports they need through their, their education systems. Um, and But what's happened um, is that governments have actually slowly pleated um, and local governments and private providers too uh, or community organisations um, have slowly um, stopped funding um, these broader community services um, and so it's a situation now that if you're not on the NDIS, um, you're not getting anything mm. um, and and that's been part of the, of the funding issue that that more and more people have been desperate um, to get on the NDIS. So we also had, you know, like HACS, um, Home and Community Care Services that um, and local government services um, for people with disabilities where the disabilities um, weren't um, significant and um, enough in order to get an individual funding package, but they still need some supports. But, but these have... Um, um, these have slowly died off over the 10 years of, of the, the ADIS.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. yeah, the council services are greatly reduced and the waiting lists are huge uh, for services. I definitely know that for certain down in my area. It's gotten really difficult for anyone needing access to those community services. And I, I was also reflecting on what you said about... Um, well a number of things the the thing that struck me first of all was also i guess that inherent vulnerability that you talk about that comes up multiple times and i think that people don't understand or or maybe they they don't want to understand or face the possibility that they could become unwell or disabled at any point in their life and you know they might think now that they're you know fully able-bodied um, and you know that there's their whole life ahead of them and nothing's going to change and you know this is not an issue for me it's got nothing to do with me but really as you say essentially you know there's an ever-present possibility in our lives of injury or disability that as you said, it's part of the normal variation of life, that it shouldn't be some kind of aberration that is seen as a, a difference, an impost, an um, abnormality, you know. These are kind of things that have been pushed onto people with disabilities, um, people with chronic illnesses and, as you said, you know, with the public transport issue, you know, it's it's seen as some kind of burden to change the way that things have been run for so-called able-bodied people um, so that we can be inclusive for everyone. And, you know, it's very, very obvious when you can't get onto a tram, um, you know, that there's a problem with public transport or, you know, the fact that you have to get onto a train at a particular carriage so that the train driver can put the... Um, the ramp on so that you can get onto the, the train. You know, there's so many different things and extra hoops that people with a disability have to go through. And as you point out at the start of the essay, you know, you have to plan ahead if you're going on a trip. You know, you need to think about where the disabled toilets are along the route that you're going. You might not be able to access all of the shops because they don't have, um, you know, a ramp or an ability to get in if you're using a, a wheelchair. So, you know, these are the things that, I, you know, able-bodied, quote-unquote, people are taking for granted, I guess, that that people think, you know, this can't happen to me, this isn't relevant to me, um, you know, I don't need to worry about it. Whereas I think what I got from this essay as well was that, you know, this is an issue for all of society, for all of governments, for all people, because, we are all affected either directly or indirectly and either right now or potentially into the future and that we shouldn't be seeing people with a disability as other. And, you know, this, uh, the, if we do see, see them as other, we end up leading to discrimination, to abuse to you know the potential for violence, as we've seen with the domestic um, sorry, the disability Royal Commission. Could you take us through some of your thoughts on that particular line of reasoning that you that you had in the essay and you know your observations about the ways that um, people with a disability are currently, I guess, viewed by government, by society, um, and how they are experiencing everyday life not just through the NDIs but in general yes um yes I really um, can
2: understand um, how people do want to um, hide from or or um, or see as other um, vulnerability or and dependency because for many, Years, I've I've done that myself, and um, writing this essay um, was really difficult um, for me um, because I've had to um, delve into my own um, vulnerability when um, the default um, for me um, and the way I've been able to, you know, become a lawyer um, and um, and work in um, a culture that and operate and um, and succeed in a culture where um, vulnerability often isn't accepted is by actually um, repressing that vulnerable side of my myself you know so um so but as she said it, it is um, it's just a part of nature. Like we're born vulnerable as and we need care as um when and then people have accidents, um, we have um we have traumas that happen in life, we um, um we have mental health days um, and we age and um and that and yet, um, we want to see that as um, um, other, as, as you mentioned. Um, and we really benefit from a more unif- universally accessible society and a more caring and inclusive society. Everybody um, benefits. Um, and so I really did want to focus on cultural change in this essay because um, although it's not talked about uh, very much, you know, um, in the actual implementation of schemes, um, it's what actually drives um, a lot of the reforms. And, and I feel like you need to keep on going back to um, understanding the um, what disability, it's about how people respond to it to make sure that we don't fall back into the the same ruts of operating, of, of tripping um, disability as um, something that you do to save the individual or as charity or, you know, you, you want to make sure that it's actually setting up society to be, to be more inclusive. And... This market schemes is, um, you know, such a, um, you know, it, it it just made me really angry. I have to say, the way um, it was it was set up and how people who were really vulnerable um, were harmed because of, of the market approach, um, and it, it just makes me think how how did they think that um, employing this market approach where there's such a, a raft of evidence that it doesn't work in terms of social services. It doesn't work in, in lots of um, ways of society. But, and, you know, after all the talk about all the goals that it just became, when government came to and the um, implementers of the scheme um, came to it, they, they once again um, just went back to um, the old um, ways of doing things and employed this market approach where um, there's this denial of of who people with disabilities actually are. And in order to provide choice and control, just um, conceiving us as as the consumer, there's a denial once again about the people with cognitive um, disabilities um, who aren't able to... Um, to take that role without more support, so there's, there seems to be there seem to be this binary: either you, all right, you want choice and control, okay, use this money, you go out and spend it, and get your supports, um, um, and so you either can, you know, you're either the idolized consumer, um, mm. and there's nothing in between, mm. so. We do want self determination for all people um, with disabilities and for the people with, with cognitive impairment. It's um, or anybody who's struggling um, because of culture or background or context or whatever to be that ideal um, consumer. Um, we need, it's not about having capacity, doesn't mean doing it on your own. Um, it means Having the, your context and your capacity actually, um, and your level of capacity capacity accommodated, so that if you um, need the support in order to exercise self determination, that support is there. And so that that was what um, was missing. And um, and yeah. So in I mean the the case that that. Um, that had really frightened a lot of people um, with disabilities, which was so um, hard to think about is, is uh, um, Anne-Marie Smith in, in Adelaide, who, um, when she transferred over to the NDIS, um, wasn't given the supports um, that she needed in order. I mean, she was just the, the system to... Um, transfer over to the NDIS. it was just a phone call, Um, although her previous state support provider, case manager, had said that she needs to have um, face-to-face assistance. Um, And in in the end, um, Emery was um, criminally um, neglected by just one individual support worker who um, and Amory ended up um, dying from um, terrible malnutrition and um, and pressure sores and um uh, and infections from being left on on a chair and, and not moved for for um the the police said for like uh, maybe over a, a year um, and she was just left at the mercy of of one support worker, and there was no no oversight. Um, and yeah, and what should have happened was for her to have had that face to face support, to have um, had the support coordinator um, assist her, and of course she needed to have more than one one support worker um, rather than just be at the mercy of of one. Support provider, and yes, yeah, so so we're we're finding a situation where where um, we really need um, more support set up, um, and that we need a an NDIS that that can be that can respond to the the different needs because people um, who are able to coordinate their supports, they still want to have the the freedom to do that. They don't want it to be as administratively complex to do it, but they still want to be able to um, navigate that. But then, on um, but then we also need more supports and more um, regulations and um, and oversights um, for for people who may need them. So we really need the NJS needs to be nimble and and diverse and and in many ways, the, what has happened is the NDIS has replicated um, the um, the discrimination that occurs in society, where where it it isn't um, diverse enough to to um, be universal and, and um, accommodate a, a broad range. Um, the reality, actually, the reality of of um, the diversity of, of life.
0: Yeah, I think that's the the really important point that you're making is that everyone's experience is not the same on the NDIS and as you said some people are having a really excellent experience and it might be because they you know aren't experiencing the challenges that others are um they might have a particularly good support coordinator or lack local area coordinator or you know uh, their plan hasn't been changed or you know all kinds of things might be going well for them and then there are other people as you say who haven't had that experience who are having a different experience whether they be cognitively um, impaired or, or otherwise and that needs to be accounted for that everyone isn't having a universally positive experience and it doesn't mean that the NDIS has no value then or it doesn't have any worth. It just means that this independent review that's being conducted is even more important to ensure that there's consistency of standards, that there's consistency of experience and that the funds are being utilised in the best way for participants. And also, of course, as you say, um, that people are able to access the supports they need through the market system. and if the market system isn't working, that there is some alternative that there isn't just a gap um, that's that's left. Uh, just to close out the conversation, Micheline, because I really valued hearing you know your personal experience and you opened the essay with a story about um, a, a trip that you made with your siblings, and you know you were reflecting, on you know the experiences that you had and the response that your brother had um to you know i guess the same situation or the same interaction and that you had different kind of uh responses different views and obviously as you say that's um accounts for the human spectrum of of different experiences and intellectual um kind of approaches and emotional experiences everyone's going to see things through a different lens potentially Um, but as you said you know you you kind of have seen perhaps I don't know like I don't want to put words in your mouth so I'm, I'm not going to I just wanted to I guess get a sense from you reflecting on that first story that you share with us in the essay have you thought about it more and have you reflected on it further? And, you know, because I think your response is just as valid as your brother's as well. You know, I was really, it kind of, it was very thought provoking to me, your interpretation of the interaction versus your brother, because I don't know which side I would end up falling on. It might be your side. So I I don't know. I just wanted to get a sense from you. Maybe you can explain it because I don't want to tell the story on your behalf, but if you could, I guess, share with us your thoughts about the way that we, um, you know, perceive each other in our interactions because it might help illuminate for those listening a way that they can be more aware and sensitive and um, caring and careful with the way that they interact with people who have a disability. So just to summarise
2: that story, my brother, sister and I, the three of us use um, electric wheelchairs and um, we were taking my brother out to... um, my brother lives interstate. We were taking him out to a tourist area, and we had one support worker um, with us who was assisting the, th- the three of us. And it was a kind of quaint village up in the um, the hills. And we want and my brother wanted to go into one of the gift stores to buy something to take back to his to his wife. And we just um, rolled up and down the streets and. And um, shop after shop after shop had steps, and and then and we finally found one shop which had a step to its main entry, but um, there was actually a courtyard at the back, and um, and there was no step there. So um, the three of us went there, and and there were gifts and um, items for sale out in this courtyard, and my brother found something and. To support worker to take his credit card and, and pay for it inside because uh, there were steps to go inside and, and he couldn't do it himself and um and the support worker did that and then the owner came out and and he was um he came out with you know great warmth and he um, said to my brother um, he wanted to give the item to him and my brother said no 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 I want to pay for it. And the owner was just saying it's it's just great to see you out here, getting out and about and and I really admire you. I wanna give it to you. Uh, yeah, because I don't know if he used the word inspirational, but he, he kept on talking about how he just admired I um, said then he saw my me and my sister, I have to admit that I was trying to hide because these situations <laughs> arise too often and embarrass me. But um and that then, and I was thinking, do I say something about inspiration porn, or, or do I um, just go along with it? And I decided, you know, he seems so nice, and and I just smiled, and and he went and got me a bar of soap, and I was saying, no, don't give me anything, but he gave me and my sister a bar of soap, and um, and then there were it was quite crowded. Other people in the courtyard were all like, like looking and listening on, and all. Um, smiling and and there was this like yeah you know, there was this feel like isn't that lovely people with this out for the day and being given gifts and but then and that was the feeling I I got and then we went out there and um, I said something about how conflicted I felt and how we were and I think I said something sarcastic about um at least we were, Able to be somebody else's inspiration for the day, and and my brother um, then said I was being very cynical, and um, and that at least we could get into that shop, and at least that that person reached out to us, um, and and it was important that people reached out to us, and and the interesting thing is that um, I've had a conversation with my brother um, since then because when I wrote that, I gave it to him and said, is it okay if I if this gets published, and um, he said that, yes, it all happened that way, but he, he did want me to put um, a, another view more strongly, um, and that's that um, he'd just been to America where um, there is a very, um, it's even more, it's very, very individualised there, and their access is is um, better in, in some ways. Um, so he had a situation where... He The backrest on his electric wheelchair fell back and wouldn't go back up. And he, and his support worker wasn't strong enough to lift him back up into a um, so that he was sitting up rather than than laying laying flat on his back. And nobody would help. Nobody would help because they were afraid of liability. And then um, the hotel where they were staying, um, the hotel staff wouldn't help. And I think they tried, they, they just tried so many, like, fit-looking men who um, looked like they would easily be able to, to just lift that, um, that backrest for him. Um, but they were all afraid of liability. And in the end, um, they had to call the, the ambulance to, to get any assistance with the wheelchair. And so my brother was saying that that we want people to be charitable Mm. and kind and, and are saying, well, I don't disagree with that. Yes, we do want people to be kind, but not not as charity. Kind because, you know, we're equal because they can empathise and it's all about being seen as as equal and not as other, being recognised, you know, on an individual level as equal and also at, at, a structural and institutional level and and I guess I feel that with that equality and that empathy that we're going to get both you know that that there will um be caring side as well because people um can empathize as well
0: yeah, yeah. no it's but thank you for relaying that story and also telling us about the American experience because I'm I'm yeah, my mind is reeling at the idea that no one would step in and help. It just... Yeah, and an ambulance had to yeah. come to assist for that. Yes. Yeah. Horrifically, <laughs> I just, yeah, I can't understand it um, at all. Yeah, I'm glad that at least that isn't the experience um, in Australia for the most part. No, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think, Michelin, you've really summed it up so beautifully I don't even want to <laughs> summarise what you've said because you've just said it perfectly in terms of, you know, being equal. There is that danger of infantilization, of othering, of, as you, as you've said so well, you know, making people with a disability seem out of the ordinary or not part of, you know, society. But as we've just been talking about, there is all kinds of shades of experience of ability of capacity of life experience and disability is just one part of life and it certainly doesn't define people either and as you've said reflecting on your own experiences for this essay you know having to suppress your vulnerabilities or to not confront them that's something that society is placing on people with a disability and the expectation that that you have to fit into a neat box so I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm really appreciative that you've brought such a a different way of looking at things to people who might not have heard your perspective before in such depth and in such a thoughtful and articulate way. And I'm really so grateful to you for writing this essay, for taking the time, but also, you know, for going through that personal reflection, uh, which must have been challenging and, you know, putting it all down so eloquently on paper because we've all benefited so much from it. So thank you so much, for the essay but also for your time today Michelin because it's just been really really illuminating and also I think it's giving me more hope that the NDIS will improve because you've put so well the ways that it can be improved so that everyone has a consistent experience so thank you so much for your time today. Thank you Amy you've been great to talk with him thank you for your insights. Oh it's my pleasure I'm really really grateful and I hope that people do Look for your quarterly essay, which is in hard copy. I'm holding it right now. Everyone can see through the medium of radio. It's called Lifeboat Disability, Humanity and the NDIS. Quarterly essay, issue number 91. It's out right now. And you can get it in bookstores, in news agents, and of course I'm sure there's an e-book version as well. And it's absolutely essential reading. And I've just been talking with Michelin Lee, who is the author of this excellent quarterly essay.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: And uh, it's great to have your company. It's also great to have the company of my wonderful guests. And I'm really delighted to be able to welcome onto the show Dr Adrian Marshall, who is a landscape architect uh, who has a PhD in urban ecology. And he advocates for indigenous flora and fauna and has been working to conserve and restore areas, especially native grasslands. But I'll let him talk about his expertise um, because he has a vast amount of it. And we are today going to be focusing our attention on Geelong's native grasslands, which is under threat from urban development and land use, um, changes in land use, which are being proposed. In a Geelong strategic assessment, which has been um, conducted by the City of Greater Geelong, the Council. Uh, They put out a huge document, but there are also some more brief uh, summary documents that hopefully make more sense than the longer document but we aren't even going to rely on that we're going to hear from adrian who has so aptly described it when i was on the the zoom online info session last night that i'm absolutely confident he'll do a phenomenal job talking with us today so welcome adrian and thank you very much for taking the time to share your expertise with us today
3: oh thank you amy it's a great pleasure to be here of course it's uh the um, native grasslands of Victoria are super-threatened. We're down to, like, 1% of them. They're critically endangered, uh, and that 1% that's left is really only 1% of 1% because most of it is is quite degraded, what, what's left. Um, so I'm the facilitator of the Grassy Plains Network. We generally focus in and around Melbourne, trying to protect the native grasslands, around Melbourne, which is a bit of a hotspot for our last remaining Indigenous native species. But uh, we heard that the Geelong strategic assessment was happening. Melbourne has had uh, its own strategic, Melbourne strategic assessment back in 2010, which was a little bit of a disaster for um, grassland conservation, the protection of uh, na- natural values in Melbourne's urban growth corridors. So when we saw that Geelong was getting their own strategic assessment, we thought we better get involved with that. So we have joined with the Victorian National Parks Association and about a dozen local organisations in the Geelong area, uh, groups like the Geelong Field Nats, for instance, to uh, to really sort of push for, for better Um, protections for nature in the two urban growth areas that are currently being proposed for development in Geelong. So they're the northern and western Geelong growth areas. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so there's this thing, the Geelong Strategic Assessment, it's a deal between the Federal Department of the Environment and the City of Greater Geelong about how all the matters... We call them matters of national environmental significance, but really just like the the things that are listed under the federal nature laws um, to, that have to be protected, how those are going to be protected in these new growth-to-growth um, growth areas. They're quite big, these growth areas. Like there's 7,000 hectares. There's going to be 100,000 people living in them. They're going to be rolled out over... The next 30 years or something. So it's a long, a long time away for some of it, but the rules that get put in place now or um in the coming months as part of this Geelong strategic assessment will uh be pretty unchangeable. When so so now's the pointy end to to really get out and make our submissions to the City of Geelong and the Federal Department of the Environment to make sure that what gets protected really does get protected in the way that we want them to be protected.
0: Exactly. So, Submissions yeah. are due on Monday. So this is why we're having this conversation now is that uh, there is time to provide a focused submission. As you said last night, you know, you could focus on one particular area and do that well, rather than encompassing multiple, you know, areas. And you can do it as a nature enthusiast. You don't necessarily have to live in Geelong, although that would be, you know, one great reason why you might want to. Um, But yes, we are going to go through some of the the Northwest Alliance's suggestions and and you know, thoughts as to how this strategic assessment could be changed for the better so that the grasslands but also its inhabitants, its endangered inhabitants are protected because there are quite a number of important species that rely on the grasslands, not just, you know, the grasslands themselves being so important. So things like uh, the growling grass frogs, which we heard about last night, uh, the striped legless lizards, golden sun moths, uh, which you told us about. So there are some very important, uh, you know, species. And what I was struck by last night uh, when you were talking to us, Adrian, was that you said that the the um, strategic assessment's aim is that these species persist. And I was, you know, alarm bells were <laughs> ringing when I heard that. And I wonder if you could expand on that.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks, Amy. Yes, the... There's a lot of um, questionable language, I suppose, about the the goals that they set. So they're creating um, some strategic conservation areas, and these are areas that will be set aside for priority nature conservation, basically, not for um, bike riding or, or other recreational activities. And they have goals for them. So for the striped legless lizards, they say the population must persist. And that's like setting the bar pretty low, if you ask me. We don't want these populations to just persist. We want them to thrive. Uh, We want them to expand and flourish. It's, uh, if you you could reduce a population of thousands down to a handful of of poor striped legless lizards and the population would would persist. It's just, yeah, we've got to do much better than that. And I think that's the the case with a lot of this documentation is it's just a bit unambitious and it's a time really where we have to uh, really make some efforts, I suppose, some sacrifices um, in order to ensure that the nature that's so important to um, not just the striped-legged lizards but to humans too and the quality of our life um, that that really gets protected. So there's uh, a lot of the grasslands pretty degraded, quote unquote, but most grassland is degraded. It's pretty hard to to find a patch that has survived colonial invasion um, very well. So, you know, saying, oh, it's degraded, we can get rid of it. Let's offset it. That, it doesn't cut it anymore. It's We've got to we've got to take those damaged areas and restore them. We've got to make them, um, bring them back to to where they were two hundred years ago or mm. or whatever.
0: Yes. Well, you showed a, a map of the native grasslands that existed before colonization, and it was just immense. And I mean, I, I was uplifted when I saw it, and then so disappointed when you showed what we are at now. It's really so shameful. Uh, that we're letting this happen and as you've said we've got some grasslands here in um, the area of Geelong that need to be protected some more high value than others in terms of their condition at the moment Um, but to give people an idea of where we're talking about uh, there are patches and I'm looking at a map so I'm going to try and describe there are patches of land in between these suburbs that I'm going to read out so uh, between Lovely Banks and Batesford, between Norlane and Cario and Bell Post Hill. So, these are the areas where we're thinking of. So, if you're from Geelong or near Geelong, envision that broad area, but then also think about some significant landmarks or land um, aspects like Cowie's Creek and also the Moorable River, which also are important parts within this plan. Um, Adrian, can you explain to us what elements uh, of the plan are needing to be adjusted in terms of conservation, especially around things like buffer zones when it comes to these areas like the creek, like the river?
3: Sure. Um, well, the, the list is very long, Amy, but um, we'll, we'll cut it short. Yeah. Um, the main thing is the strategic conservation areas that they're planning to set aside need to be bigger. Um, so they've got one up the north that's uh, about 100 hectares and that we're proposing that that gets larger. But the, the main one, I suppose, is along Cowies Creek. So this is a beautiful little creek that runs uh, down to Limeburners Bay um, in in Geelong, but it's got growling grass frogs along it, and we uh, we've known that there have been growling grass frogs on one side of the Geelong Ring Road um, for a long time. But the surveys for the other side, which is the Western Geelong Growth Area, um, have have come up with a population al- along along there too. So, at the moment, those grass frogs, like they have, they're proposing a one hundred meter buffer. Uh, for, for them to survive and thrive, and that will be their conservation area. All the experts we talk to say 200 metres is the minimum sort of size. These frogs, they need uh, their, their ponds, their wetlands, that be, have to be quite sizable, like at least 50 metres or, or so on, and then they need buffer areas either side of those ponds, breeding ponds, um that are like free from um interference from dogs or humans or or whatever. So really that expands it out to about 200 meters. And then after that you can have some sort of um bike trail going past or a walkway down sort of thing to 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 see the, the lovely natural values of Cowie's Creek. So for um Melbourne listeners, I suppose the equivalent in a in a way is Merry Creek. So we know how magnificently the Merry Creek has been d- restored over the last 30 years or so, and how it's become such an important uh, bio link, I suppose, in the landscape, and also just for human enjoyment, amenity, and and so on. And that's what we want Cowies Creek to be. So we've got climate change is going to 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 roll through in a hell of a big way, and these waterways across the the landscape are going to become increasingly important. So we don't want just a bare minimum ask of like 100 metres le- along along its length. We need to, to think these things are going to be doing a lot more work in the future. Um, there's going to be a lot of development around, a lot of pressure on it. There's going to be more water going into the creek, so flow is going to be faster. The frogs aren't going to like that. There's going to be more light, more sound all of those things that um, impact uh, nature just as much as they impact humans. I, I always say when you're doing sound walls, you know, we do sound walls for humans. Why don't we do sound walls for frogs? They they actually suffer from sound way worse than people do. So that's Cowies Creek. And the same goes for the Demurable River. It's um, a huge fire link through, through the area and it's a much, um, uh, it's a long-suffering river, I suppose. It's... It's had, uh, it, It's been put in a concrete culvert and that culvert's then broken and what that means is water's leaking out of it into the ground and there's a big quarry nearby that they get all the water ends up in the quarry and the quarry pumps it out further downstream. So there's a length of the Moorahool that actually goes dry on occasion, which is pretty pretty bizarre so that all that needs to be like restored and healed and brought back to life and it needs its you know substantial uh protected area conservation area along its length and really its whole floodplain protected properly so that all of those processes that go to make such a a, to make a living river in the, the the profound sense of the word um all of the, We need the whole floodplain protected to ensure that that goes ahead. So that's, yeah. what, I'm, that's what I'm talking about with, with buffers. Yeah, indeed.
0: Mm-hmm. And, well, uh, there is an excellent documentary about um, the Mirable River called the River Mirabel which is free to watch on YouTube because I talked to their uh, filmmakers on the show a while ago. So if anyone wants to inform themselves about the Mirable River even more, um, check that out. Now, Adrian, you also talked about a lack of data and the fact that, you know, this strategic assessment is meant to give us a big picture look at the land, its qualities, its potential uses, and obviously the word strategic is in there. So it's about creating a strategy. Um, And, you know, you've pointed out the lack of ambition there. Part of the issue is also poor levels of data and surveys in some of these key areas can you tell us where we're lacking this data?
3: Uh, sure there's look there's um, they did a whole lot of surveying back in 2017 that they had to redo because it was inadequate to start off with and they didn't even get it right the, the second time round. really with the the uh, yeah strategic assessment is supposed to look at the big picture so in theory, it should be good. It should say, like, here are the key areas we protect, here are the ones we can afford to lose. And so I'm here are where we're going to put a biolink across the landscape because it's connecting A to B and they're both important, kind of thing. Unfortunately, though, here we've lost that big scale portion. So none of the land around these urban growth areas has been surveyed for its biodiversity. So we don't, apart from like along the creek where we know there are good values and along the river, um, we don't know what's out there. So when we put or aim or try to put a uh, bio link across the landscape, we don't know what we're connecting what to. So that high-level intention has been undermined by this. Um, just this. Uh, well, it's, it's hard. It's hard to understand why they haven't really mm. done that. It's, it's just an over. It's just poor, poor management. Yes, of this. Poor implementation of this whole strategic assessment idea. It's lacking. Lacking that way. So we want that to that data to be provided. There's also other data like. Um, well, we there are. Species that uh, we suspect are out there but haven't been surveyed for, um, things like the swamp skink and, um, the, well, the grassland earless dragon too, that need to be surveyed for. And, um, yeah, that, that those surveys haven't been done. And there's a lot of the landscape actually within the growth areas that hasn't been surveyed. So they've really only looked at about 70% of it. So in their planning development, they're going ahead with their planning um, ideas um, without fully understanding what biodiversity is there, which seems like they've got it back to front, really. They've Mm. started off with a really strong plan for, like, here's how we will design this, but then they said, oh, hold on, there's biodiversity there. How are we going to squeeze the biodiversity into our... Um, urban design, not the other way around, which is um, a shame to say the least.
0: Absolutely. And uh, another word comes up, which is offsets. Um, and in particular, there are proposals to have offsets in this plan, and that property developers will be um, levied and they will pay a levy into a fund, which will uh, they expect amount to about $135 million which to me sounds like not enough for something which is going to supposedly offset a lot of destruction for a very long period of time so i wonder could you reflect on the role of offsets and that levy and what the the strategic assessment proposes will be done to make up for some of the areas that they they aren't going to set aside as specific areas that will be protected?
3: Mm. Um, So the idea is that they put a levy on developers. So all the developers working in this area will have to pay uh, into a biodiversity fund, and that fund will go to purchase the land that becomes the conservation areas. Uh, Not just purchase, but also manage. So... In perpetuity, in theory, in practice, uh, at least ten years of great, um, high-quality management. So that's what the 135 million is going to, uh, land purchase and management. Then there's a whole lot of uh, there's like there's 700 hectares of golden sun moth habitat. They're only keeping 100 of it, so they've got to pay compensation for the other 600 hectares that are going to be destroyed. And they do that by in purchasing land elsewhere and protecting that. And it has to be... The idea is that is, there's no net loss, but that's a joke. But anyway, yeah. so let's say they go protect 2,000 hectares of golden sun moth habitat somewhere else. That's the idea. And um, so you lose your local biodiversity values somewhere it, um, Golden Sun Moth gets protected somewhere else, um, hopefully, um, well, yes, it gets protected somewhere else. So you'd lose your local biodiversity values and you have to be strategic about where you buy that new land, I suppose. So we want that those new purchases to be in very strategic locations, preferably as close to Geelong as possible, also like in conservation corridors or next to existing conservation reserves, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, the, but there isn't really a kind of requirement at the moment to have it with you know, within this many kilometers of, you know, Geelong.
3: Absolutely, that is correct. There is um and it gets complicated, but um uh, in for at least half the offsets that that is the case. They could be out in Hamilton or Portland or or somewhere like that. So yeah, not, not very um, um, appropriate in my my opinion. The yeah. other thing is they're offsetting like species that shouldn't be offset. So there are four populations of striped legless lizards. They, these are um, very endangered creatures. The federal government's uh, scientific advisory committee says every population of striped legless lizard is important for the species' survival. Uh of the four populations we have here, three are probably going to be lost to development. So that just seems um, wrong to me and we want, we're calling for those lizards to have their own conservation areas as well.
0: Well, that makes absolute sense. And uh, there's also a lot more sense that was being made as well around this idea that, This is a long term strategic assessment, and the buying of land is also over a long period of time, the acquisition. And therefore, you pointed out um, that there needs to be an interim management plan, which clearly also would need funding or some type of incentivisation so that private landholders who might have their land acquired don't leave it in kind of, I guess, a state of disrepair or, or, you know, weeds are growing and overtaking the native grasslands. Could you just, um, you know, close out this conversation explaining some of those other aspects that you want people to keep in mind when they're thinking about making a submission?
3: Indeed, yes. Well, the interim management is a big one, and we've seen that in uh, the Melbourne Strategic Assessment. We've lost thousands of hectares of good grassland to weeds because of exactly that, landholders abandoning their responsibilities so we want we want um i suppose carrots and sticks for all the private landholders whose lands might become um conservation land to to really protect those lands there's um a lot in these documents um that that's missing like there's nothing no discussion about transparency so we don't know like all the um, if the conservation management plan gets made for an area, like do we get to see that? Do we not? We don't know. There's no statement in there saying all of this information should be public and publicly discussed prior, prior, prior to it being locked in. Um, there's also like a, a, a few um, sticks that are, are missing in terms of governance. So the city of Greater Geelong has to do all of this stuff, but if they don't, what happens? Mm. Like the federal government has um, some, um, some can turn the whole thing off, but that's a kind of nuclear option. There are no controls in place for how uh, to bring the city of Geelong to account were they to default or start to default on their uh, conservation requirements. Um,
0: I'm going to have to jump in, but um, Adrian. There is a chance for people to head along in person if they are local. Uh, On Friday, this Friday at 12, um, the Grassy Plains Network is hosting a briefing in Norlane, which is... um, All the details are on the Victorian National Parks Association website. It's at Lab Square Commons uh, in Norlane. It's being hosted by the Northwest Alliance. So, as you said, all the community groups that have been banding together uh, to discuss this and obviously you're putting forward a submission um, and people can check out the northwestalliance.au website which will also have plenty of information up there and it currently does about what you're proposing and what your plans are um, and that people will be able to make their submissions. And I'll put a link up to where they can find that submission button on the Geelong Council website as well so that people can find all the info they need to engage with the process. Um, But I wanna say a big thank you to you for your time today. It's been really wonderful to chat and get a better sense of the real challenges and the seriousness of this issue for Geelong, but also for Victoria.
3: Thank you very much, Amy, it's, and it's great to, to be able to talk to all of you listeners, and I hope they go out and make some submissions. Be yes,
0: fast. please. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you so much. I've been chatting with Dr. Adrian Marshall, facilitator of the Grassy Plains Network, so I'll put all the links up, I promise, to everything on social media, and um, you won't miss out. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.